It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Obviously, the world is still reeling from this horrific attack in Israel over the weekend which has just galvanized a worldwide sense of sadness. Unfortunately, so much of the reporting that I've seen on this, so much of the commentary that I've seen both on the conventional media and in social media has been um, incredibly one-dimensional, incredibly shallow, and really just takes... It almost the and I don't mean to diminish the severity of what we've seen here, but so much of the commentary that I've seen and I'm not even talking about just from rank and file people. I'm talking about from pundits, from supposed experts, from political leaders. It's almost as if people are acting like they're watching a sporting event. And, you know, there's such a lack of. Deliberative thinking And it almost reminds me, I mean, this attack has been compared several times to September 11th. It reminds me of the blind spots that emerged in America after September 11th that allowed us to participate in two wars and occupy one nation for 20 years and uh, do go forward with things like the Patriot Act and warrantless wiretapping and renaming French fries as freedom fries. And I'm concerned that I see some of that same sense of revenge first thought, thought later so prevalent in the aftermath of this attack. One exception to that has been one of the brightest journalists and investigative reporters around, and that's uh, Lee Fang, whose uh, tweets on this have been have been uh, definitely worth reading, as his reporting always is. You could check out his uh, newsletter and subscribe to it, as I do, at LeeFang.com. Lee, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Frank, thanks for having me. Hey, do you still call it Twitter? I can't break the habit of calling it Twitter. <laughs> I can't stop calling it Twitter either, no matter how much Elon pushes the new X thing. You know, I, I, I know some people that uh, when they came out with television sets, they still kept calling it a radio. I think that's going to be me. 50, 60 years from now, yeah. <laughs> everybody's going to be calling it X. I'll still be calling it Twitter. Lee, um, let, I want to pick your brain on a few issues that you've been covering. But first, I want to get your take on what we've been seeing in terms of the American reaction to the Middle East. For starters, uh, there was a big rally, uh, a pro-Palestinian rally this weekend in New York City, led by the Democratic Socialists of America. And it was really amazing to me that you they were able to get hundreds of people to come into midtown Manhattan and rally in support of the Palestinians Oh, right after this terrorist attack on um, on Israeli civilians, uh, that coupled with some of the other comments we've seen, basically uh, d- referring to Hamas as resistance fighters and liberators. Before we get to the right, tell me what you make of the commentary from so many on the American left in response to the attacks. I think it's an abomination. You know, the, the same group that organized that rally in New York, the chapter in San Francisco, where I live, organized a very similar rally. And look, we I think these groups do no service to the Palestinian cause. Palestinians 
uh, are outgunned in, in many ways. You know, they don't have a very powerful lobby group. There aren't organizations in the United States and in much of the Western world that effectively communicate the Palestinian cause and the cause of peace. Instead, we have uh, very loud extremist leftist groups that are literally celebrating one of the worst uh, terror attacks in modern history. You know, this the, the language that was used, you know, the same organization, DSA, when they have their rally in San Francisco, one of the speakers said, you know, um, look, you know, we were decolonizing uh, oh. that music festival and these were a bunch of hipsters they killed just absolutely dehumanizing these innocent civilians that were killed for no reason you know um we can talk about the geopolitics we can talk about the history we can talk about the peace process we can talk about the need to sympathize with all sides in this conflict but that type of just really incendiary rhetoric and lack of compassion or you know, really lack of humanity for what just happened. It's just, it makes no sense. And if anything, it harms the Palestinian cause. So it's just been, it's bad on, on all levels. What are you seeing in terms of uh, commentary from the American right in response to this? Look, um, I'm, I'm kind of like a lot of, I'm sure a lot of your listeners, I've been glued to my computer, to my smartphone, reading lots of news and looking at social media and, you know, I'm kind of dismayed at how a lot of the pro-Israel voices in Congress and many in the media and cable news and in a lot of different magazines and news outlets here in the U.S. are taking a, you know, completely jingoistic, uh, you know, we've got to go to war, we've got to wipe them out, it doesn't matter how many civilians are killed position without any kind of look at the intelligence failures, at, at the role of the Netanyahu government and uh, not just not preparing for this moment, but all the, the other steps they could have taken to prepare uh, Israel for these type of security challenges. If you read the Israeli press, not just the lefty press, but even the conservative and center-right Israel uh, outlets, um, Times of Israel uh, and others, you're going to see much more, uh, I've seen much more crit critical coverage of Netanyahu, much more measured coverage of this catastrophe. Um, I, I'm just kind of, you know, this is a, I might, my jaws drop watching Marco Rubio and others saying, you know, it doesn't matter if we kill a million children. You know, that's basically what he was asked this afternoon on CNN. Um, you know, how, how do you, how do you reason with that kind of rhetoric? You know, we're, I was just, I was just decrying the DSA's uh, rhetoric, uh, justifying the Hamas attack. Uh, t discussing a, killing a million children in, in Gaza in response is just as deplorable. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned, because I've noticed this too, the diversity of opinion and discussion, not only with respect to this, but every political issue and every geopolitical issue in the Israeli press. I read the Israeli press and I'm always really impressed at the, at the wide variety of opinions that are consistently expressed, not only by newspaper writers and editorial writers, but by individual citizens that are quoted in this, in this press. When it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the United States, I've noticed two things. One, 
this issue engenders such a strong emotional response on both sides of uh, of this issue, more so than almost any issue that's covered in American politics, including what countries America goes to war with and uh, what America's doing with its foreign policy. But the other thing that I've noticed is there's far less tolerance for alternative views in the American press when covering Israel, not just this war issue, but we could talk about the Supreme Court issue or a number of others. I'm curious why you think that is in a country that prides itself on the First Amendment and freedom of speech. Why do you think, uh, if you even agree with my premise, why do you think that America is so far behind Israel in terms of having those dissenting and differing voices? No, Frank, I think that's an incredibly astute observation. I've noticed that over the years as well. You know, it's stiltifying. You know, you look at a lot of these, you know, columnists and, and publications here in the U.S. that that cover the conflict. It's it's either extreme left um, taking a, you know, a position that Israel is an illegitimate state, that everyone in Israel is just seeking to seize a Palestinian land, that they're this monolithic uh, country, and that's not the case. You know, Israel is an open society with open debate with many different viewpoints. You know, I went to Israel last year. I went to the West Bank. Um, I, I talked to many different people on every level of society in Israel, and I was struck by the level of uh, open dissent and discussion. I went around the time of their big election, so you know it was particularly politically charged. Um, and, you know, you look here at the lefty publications and the pro-Israel publications, and you, you don't see as much nuance or texture or attempt to understand the, the shades of gray in this conflict. And trust me, there are many. Uh, it's not a it's not a simple black and white story. Last question about the Middle East, and then I want to ask you about some of the other stories that you've been covering. And if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Lee Fang. You could see his terrific investigative journalism at LeeFang.com, standard uh, spelling of both Lee and Fang. The videos that we have seen out of this conflict are so awful. And you made the point on the social media platform formerly known as Twitter that why are people going the extra mile and publishing obviously fake videos and making completely evidence-free claims when the evidence is so horrible and the images are so horrible. Why do you think people are doing this? Look, I think there's a couple factors. One, there are just scummy people in the world that they get off on retweets and uh, emojis, you know, posting fake um, emotion-driven content to exploit this moment. The other factor here is that people are traumatized and they're so shook and shook, shook by this moment that they are searching the Internet to kind of build the emotional case for revenge. And, you know, I, I kind of don't blame them. There's something human about that. If you're, you're harmed and you're traumatized so severely, you kind of go into a rabid spell. And, you know, I, I do feel for the people who are directly affected by this. There are many Americans that are directly affected by this. But yeah, it's not like we need more evidence to show that this was an atrocity. Why people are using obviously dubbed, obviously faked videos, making claims that are simply ludicrous or at least not evidence and fact based. We don't need that. The atrocity is already clearly documented and well reported. I I hate to see it. I see a lot of reporters who should know better um, posting it. 
All right. Uh, let me uh, pick your brain on a few other subjects. You had a, a, a column out last week or an article out last week. Lobbyist knives out for Matt Gates. I think most of our listeners know that Matt Gates was the face of this rebellion about Kevin McCarthy. What are you hearing about what retribution Matt Gates is likely to be facing and from whom? Well, look, um, a number of lobbyists tied to uh, McCarthy are seeking to avenge his ouster. Um, there's, there is kind of a nascent move this week to resurrect McCarthy's speakership. Uh, that there's some some rumors of that, so he's not necessarily gone. He initially said he's not going to run for speaker again, but it's you know neither uh, Jim Jordan or or the the other candidates uh, can gain the necessary votes. Maybe he will jump back in, but a lot of these uh, lobbyists that are tied to McCarthy have been attacking uh, uh, Gates. They've been uh, resurrecting these ethics investigations of him resurrecting these uh, attacks on him, claiming that, you know, he misappropriated campaign funds, that he sexually trafficked children, that he abuses drugs, that he's an alcoholic, you know, it's the same type of uh, rumor mill. And none of these charges have been proven. You know, the Justice Department investigated, but ultimately did not bring a case. And, you know, we've seen this dark money group, Americans for Tax Reform, which is you know, very well known for their taxpayer protection pledge. That's uh, Grover Norquist Group, right? Grover Norquist Group. But they're also known for something else in Washington, D.C., and that's taking a lot of corporate money, not disclosing it, and running special issue campaigns for special interests. You know, they're doing this for the banks right now on a swipe fee campaign. And just, you know, miraculously, they're suddenly running these ads against Gates in Florida. You know, there's the rumor that he might want to run for governor soon uh, after DeSantis. So the knives are out for Gates. Uh, they want to punish him for this uprising. Uh, I don't think anyone saw how successful or anyone predicted how sex, successful it would be. So they want to kneecap him now before he gains too much political power. Um, and it's going to be very interesting to see where that whole thing goes and what the uh, ramifications of this are. Lee, since you alluded to the fact that you're in San Francisco and in California, your governor, your former mayor, Gavin Newsom, has appointed LaFonza Butler to replace Diane Feinstein. What are you uh, hearing about the likelihood of her actually running for this seat? And how is this pick being uh, being received in San Francisco Bay Area circles? Well, look, uh, given the kind of racial and identity politics that are so pervasive in the Democratic Party, Gavin Newsom received a lot of criticism within the party for appointing uh, Padilla uh, to the seat after Kamala Harris vacated it to be appointed vice president to, you know, once you won uh, that election. Uh, there was demands that, hey, this was a black woman seat. You must appoint a black woman. So he promised with this seat that there would be a caretaker black woman appointed. Um, LaFonza Butler fulfills that criteria, but Gavin Newsom has said, and his advisors have said, that she is not being compelled or there's not this expectation that it's only a caretaker role. I think it's very likely she actually does uh, run for uh, re-election at the end of next year. And I, I think this really divides the field. You know, there are several Democrats running Barbara Lee, uh, uh, Katie Porter, uh, and uh, Adam Schiff. I, I, Adam Schiff. Um, thank you very much. My, my mind was going blank for a second. And he's, uh, I think LaFonda Butler 
you know, she's got the labor background. She was a former lobbyist for big tech. She previously worked for Airbnb. She was a consultant for Uber. Um, these are the actual big pillars of power in the California Democratic Party. Um, but, but you know, fulfilling, checking the box on on the identity politics. She's a black lesbian uh, she, she, as a former lobbyist. Uh, she, she can mobilize those checks from big business. She has a good chance at, at running for re-election. It's going to be interesting. Hey, one of the best articles that I've read recently was an article that you did regarding Ozempic. Now, you can't go anywhere. You can't go to a cocktail party. You can't have a discussion about weight loss on the radio. You can't read a newspaper article about weight loss or uh, watch a television news report about uh, weight loss without mentioning Ozempic and the kind of sister drugs to Ozempic. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people have called into this program and they've reported some very positive things. Other people have called into this program and they have reported that it makes them nauseous, makes them sick. And that they're a little concerned about how uh, their bodies reacted on Ozempic. What have you found in terms of what role money is playing in the Ozempic media craze? Look, I mean, I. I think there are a lot of unanswered questions about these drugs, but it's what one thing that is clear, and this is a whole new class of drugs, these GLP drugs that imitate a, a hormone uh, that regulates appetite, uh, affects your glucose levels. It's for diabetics, but it's now being used for weight loss. But for big pharma, they see dollar signs because unlike the, the last big blockbuster drug, which is the COVID vaccine, the vaccines were essentially, with the exception of the boosters, a one-time event. For these drugs, in terms of weight loss, you have to use them on a monthly basis, on a weekly basis. They're something that you can't stop using. I mean, even Novo Nordisk's own studies show that the moment, the week you get off of it, uh, the the weight tends to immediately come back. Um, So this is a perpetual moneymaker for big pharma. Um, These drugs cost 10,000 or more per year. And so they are marketing it heavily. Novo Nordisk has hit about a billion dollars in uh, TV and online ads. Uh, and they're also mobilizing a lot of the media coverage. So, you know, my piece looked at how many big media outlets, whether that's the Washington Post, USA Today, Washington Examiner, ABC News, CBS News, are running these glossy um, puff pieces about Ozempic, Wagovi, and the others without disclosing that the experts that they quote, the physicians, the patient groups, and others are funded by the pharma companies that are hoping to gain. Now, that's not to say that there isn't great promise from these drugs. For many people, these drugs might be very helpful and they might be the right thing to do. But we just have to be clear-eyed about all the kind of lobbying and public relations that are happening right now. The companies are doing everything they can to get America hooked on these drugs and to try to uh, sideline the kind of concerns that we may have around their effectiveness, around the side effects and other potential uh, downsides. Lee Fang, we're going to have to end it there. I always enjoy our conversations. I hope we can chat again soon. Thanks for having me, Frank. Thank you. Thank you, Lee Fang. Check him out online, LeeFang.com. Subscribe to his newsletter. You'll be glad that you did. And he's actually one of the few people on X that is worth following. Uh, comments, questions, thoughts, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222, straight ahead.